halfway through the book, and, and I don't know how many of you remember that service, but the Lord just stepped in and began doing things, touching folks, and the power of God fell, and we just didn't get very far in our study of the book of Numbers. And um, after service, uh, I was talking to my wife, and she said, well, what did you teach on today? I said, on the book of Numbers. She said, you had church like that teaching on the book of Numbers? <laughs> yeah, we really did. <laughs> There's, there's some powerful things in this book, and uh, we, didn't, we didn't finish, um, and so we're going to go back, since it has been so long, we're going to do an extensive review this morning, and I don't normally like to do that, but just because it has been so long since we uh, taught this, I want to take some uh, extra time this morning to do some review of some of the things that we did cover in that lesson, and... Um, then we will go on and look at some other things today. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to take our text, and there's a reason for this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Praise God. Amen. All these things, the Apostle Paul said, all these things. And he was speaking of the time the children of Israel spent in the wilderness and uh, the rock that followed them, and the water they drank from that rock, their lustings, their judgment, everything that happened to them, Paul said, happened to them as an example for us. For us, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Amen. The Apostle Paul intended for us to learn some lessons from the book of Numbers. Amen. And God intends for us to learn some lessons from the book of Numbers. And so we're going to look at some of those lessons today if the Lord will help us. Amen. Why don't we pray together right now, everybody. Let's ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Let's talk to him together. Lift our hands, lift our voices, and talk to the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ. Before we leave this building today, 
Let your presence fill this house, I pray. We thank you now in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Let's worship the Lord together, everyone. Can we do that? Everybody, let's lift our voices to the Lord. Amen. Let's lift our voices in praise and adoration to the King of Kings today. Hallelujah. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Praise God, praise God, praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. As I said, I want to do a bit of an extensive review before we actually get into um, new material here this morning. So please bear with me just a little while. The book of Numbers is so named because of two numberings that take place in this book. Uh, these are census times, amen, where they are uh, counting the number of men that are a part of this group that have left Egypt and are on their way to the promised land. You can find these census takings or numberings uh, in chapters 1 through 4 and again in chapters 26 and 27. The first census that was taken was taken the second year after the Israelites left Egypt. And uh, then they took a second census nearly 40 years later because the numbers had changed. And there was a reason why the numbers had changed. Amen. And we'll talk about that in just a few moments. So the first census recorded those that came out of Egypt. The second census recorded those who went into the promised land. And the two groups are not the same. Now what we find in the book of Numbers is the story of the 40 years of wandering that took place between the time that the Hebrews left Egypt and the time they finally inherited the promise of God. And, uh, and, and so it was that God uh, began dealing with them and working with them um, throughout this book. Now, uh, we generally try to give you an outline of the books, and uh, I uh, made a mistake last week, or, or not last week, but the last time I taught, I... I, I guess my mouth got ahead of my brain, and that's, that's um, not hard for me to do. But uh, I, I misquoted a couple of chapters. For those of you that are taking notes on this, I went back uh, and listened again to it so I could make sure, and I had made a mistake. So let me give you the actual breakdown of this outline uh, correctly. Uh, first of all, chapters uh, beginning with chapter 1 and going through chapter 10, verse 10, what we find are the preparations for the wilderness. Then chapter 10 verse 11 through the end of chapter 21 are the wanderings of the people of Israel. Chapters 22 through 25 record for us what we will call the Balaam incident. Some of you are familiar with Balaam and what took place there. But uh, that's recorded in chapters 22 through 25 of the book of Numbers. And then... Um, Last time I said chapter 25 and 26, it's chapters 25 through 36 where we find the preparations for the promised land, getting ready to inherit the promises of God. Uh, now we started talking about the preparations for the wilderness. Um, in, in our last lesson we talked about uh, how the events in this book began about one month after the tabernacle was completed, uh, about two years after the great exodus from Egypt. Uh, the book opened with a command from God to Moses to take a census to find out how many people there were. 
Uh, chapters 2 and 3 deal with the location of the tribes in the camp. And we, we talked about and pointed out to you how that the tabernacle sat in the middle of the camp, thereby signifying to us that the house of God ought to be the center of our lives. Amen. It shouldn't be an afterthought. shouldn't be something that we just uh, decide to do once in a while. But everything in our life ought to revolve around the house of God. Amen. Amen. Christianity is not a hobby. It's not something we do in our spare time. It's a lifestyle. Amen. Praise God. Everything ought to revolve around living for God. And, uh, and so chapters 2 and 3 deal with the location of the tribes in the camp, their order in processions. And uh, uh, then the remainders of these chapters then begin to lay out various laws and consecrations and blessings as they prepare for the journey that, that was supposed to lead them from the Mount of God to the land of promise. Now, I, I want you to understand, church, that it was the plan of God for them to leave Egypt and go directly into the land of promise. That's what God intended to happen. I've been having this discussion with uh, a few preachers of late about the will of God and how the will of God transpires. And I, 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 it's, it's a very complicated thing. And I don't have time to get too sidetracked in all of that today. But we, we need to understand there are some things that God sets in His will as paramount that simply will take place and there's not a devil in hell that can stop it. Now ultimately the will of God I believe will be done. But I do believe there are some things that God allows his will to be affected by the will of man. I don't believe we can stop the will of God. But I believe through our disobedience or unbelief that we are able to delay the will of God. And I believe that in great part because of what I learned from the book of Numbers. God intended to pull them straight out of Egypt, take them by the mount, give them the law, and set them up in the land of Israel. But that didn't happen. Amen. That did not happen. Uh, there were things that took place that drastically changed the planned order of events. So they spent about a year at Mount Sinai. And, uh, and then they... Uh, they broke camp, and they headed for Kadesh Barnea. And, and I can only imagine what an impressive picture it must have been. More than a million people marching out from Mount Sinai led by the Ark of the Covenant. I, I can only begin to imagine what that must have looked like. Amen. Then chapters 13 and 14, and this is kind of where we got bogged down uh, in the last lesson, was in chapter 14. We, we just kind of couldn't get any farther than that. But chapters 13 and 14, we read of the 12 men that were sent into the land to promise to spy out the land. It was their job, it was their duty to determine the condition of the land and the strength of the people that they would have to overcome uh, to possess their promised inheritance. As I pointed out to you in that lesson, they spent 40 days uh, spying out that land, and that number was significant because it would come back to haunt them, uh, amen, very shortly. Uh, when they spent their 40 days, they came back with a mixed report, and uh, they said the land was beautiful, the land was bountiful, but, they said, the inhabitants are much more powerful than we are. Now, you know, I... I 
I brought out the fact that these men were never asked for their opinion about whether or not the Israelites could take the land. Whether or not they could take it, whether or not they would take it, was never an issue. God's plan was they would take it. And in fact, Joshua and Caleb stood up and said, Look, God is with us and God's going to put them to flight. It was not about how strong the Israelites were. It was about how strong God was. Well, hallelujah. You know, we need to understand that. We've got to get that revelation when we're fighting our problems, when we're facing our dilemmas, when, when we are bogged down with situations and circumstances. We've got to stop and tell ourselves it's not about how strong we are. It's not about how good we are. It's not about how capable we are. It's all about God and seeing His plan and His purpose accomplished. Hallelujah. Amen. God can take the weakest of vessels. God can take the most inept of personalities and still do a great and wonderful work through them if they'll just surrender to His purpose. In fact, the Apostle Paul got that great revelation while he was praying, God, take this thorn in the flesh away from me. Three times he, he got down to business and sought God, I believe, with fastings and, and groanings and, and nights of prayer, asking God, pleading with God, take this thing away until finally the Lord spoke to him and said, said I want you to understand something, Paul. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. See, the devil doesn't want us to understand that. The devil wants us focused on our weakness. The devil wants us focused on our faults and our failures and our flaws. Are you hearing me this morning? The devil wants us to see how no good for nothing we are. But God said, look, it's in those times when you recognize and you realize how worthless you are that you can reach out to me and I'll step in and do what you can't do. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. He said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Hallelujah. And so we need to understand that. We need to understand it. But, but these spies, ten of them came back. And they, rather than focusing on how powerful God was, they focused on how weak they were. And they brought back what the Bible calls an evil report. Now, again, I, I don't want this to, is, this is how we got so bogged down. But I want you to understand how God views unbelief. What was their report? Was there anything about their report that was a lie? Hello? No, it's not a trick question. There was nothing about their report that was a lie. They did have some big inhabitants in that land. They did have some giants living there. There wasn't anything they said that was a lie. So what was evil about the report? Why did God call it evil? Because of their unbelief. And, and we, we, need, we need to comprehend this morning how God feels about unbelief. God doesn't see that as a flaw. He sees it as evil. Because unbelief challenges the very nature of God himself. 
You know, when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't just say, I tell you the truth. He said, I am the truth. I am truth. He personified truth. That's the nature and the character of God. That's why, J, that, that, that's why the Bible says, uh, Hebrews, not James, Hebrews says that it is impossible for God to lie. Impossible. God couldn't lie if he wanted to. Well, he couldn't. The Bible says it's impossible. Do we believe the Bible or don't we? God couldn't lie if he wanted to. Because as soon as God says it, it becomes the truth. Well, so when we say we don't believe God's going to do what he said he's going to do, we are calling God a liar. And we are impugning the very nature of God. So our unbelief, our doubt is not just a flaw. It's not just something we struggle with. It's evil. You're accusing God of being a liar. You say, no, preacher, no, no, that's not what I'm doing. I just don't think he'll do it for me. Did he put qualifiers on what he said he would do? Did he say, if you'll be good enough, if you'll be strong enough, if you'll be spiritual enough, did he say any of that? Well, either he meant what he said or he's a liar. And the Bible tells us he's not a liar. So when we doubt him, when we are filled with unbelief, in fact, the Bible speaks of an evil heart of unbelief. An evil heart of unbelief. You know what, church, really, and, and again, I, God help me not to get too bogged down. I've got to finish this book. We can't spend three weeks on this one book. We'll, we're already nearly halfway through the year and, and, and not even through the first five books of the Bible. So, so we've we got a long way to go, don't we? But, but we, we've, got, we, we've got to get a hold of this. We've got to understand how important it is to believe God. The Bible says, the Bible says that if we, if we have faith, we can speak to the mountain. Be thou removed and be cast into the sea. And if we'll say that and not Doubt in our hearts. Let me tell you something, church. There's not a person under the sound of my voice that doesn't have enough faith to move a mountain. Everybody in this building's got enough faith to move mountains. Say, no, not me, preacher. I really struggle. No, no, no. If, if it's just the size of a grain of mustard seed, if you didn't have that much faith, you wouldn't come to church. You've got that much faith. The question is not whether or not you've got enough faith. The question is how big is your unbelief? Help me, Jesus. You know, we've got to see this like the old-fashioned balances. You know those balances that, that hung uh, from a center point and you'd put things on either side and, and you'd have to try to weigh it out. We need to see that old-fashioned scale, that old-fashioned balance. And on one side is our faith and on the other side is our unbelief. And somehow we've got to get that unbelief out of our hearts. I'm telling you, rather than praying, God, increase my faith, you need to pray, God, decrease my doubt. 
got faith. Say it. I've got faith. Some of you didn't have, have so much unbelief you didn't even say it. I want you to say it. I've got faith. Tell your neighbor I've got faith. Tell your neighbor they got faith. It's not a question of whether or not you've got enough faith. The question is how strong is your unbelief? And I'm telling you, church, if we can get to the place that we start praying, God, take this unbelief out of me. God, forgive me of having an evil heart of unbelief. God, take it away. I believe you, God. I know I believe you. I've got faith in you, but that unbelief is weighing me down. Take this unbelief out of me. Get it out of my heart. Church, if we can get the unbelief out, there is no telling what God will do for us. If we can just get the unbelief out. See, see when, 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 that, when that scale finally starts to just look balanced and you've got just as much unbelief, you, got, you, you can start seeing God do things right then. But if you ever get to the place that that faith way outweighs that unbelief, I'm telling you, that's when you can speak to the mountain and say, be thou removed and cast into yonder sea and it will obey you. Is anybody hearing this preacher this morning? I've got to move on, but I, I want to make sure that I drill this into your hearts. Let us begin praying, God, rid me of my unbelief. Is that not the prayer that the man said that brought his, his boy to the Lord and, 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 and the demons was, were, were, were tearing at him and casting him in the fire and into the, into the water? And the man came and said, Lord, if you can do anything, help my son. And Jesus said, if you can believe, anything is possible. And what was his response? Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I got the faith, Lord, but I know there's some doubt down in there too. And what I'm asking you to do is not increase my faith. I'm asking you to decrease my doubt. And evidently God decreased his doubt because the Lord spoke the word and the boy was set free. Some of you could get your miracle today if you just let God deal with the doubt. If you just ask God to forgive you of your unbelief, you could get your miracle right here in this service. Well, hallelujah. So, ten of the spies came back with their evil report. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, of course, said, no, 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 look, look, look. <laughs> Forget all this. Forget all this. Let's, let's believe God. Let's, 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 let's believe that God can do it. We're well able to go up and possess. Let's go at once. Let's, let's, let's not even stop and think about it. Let's not stand here and talk about it. Let's just go and get what God said we could have. And you'd think a good faith message would have inspired the congregation. You thought that they'd have been standing on their feet and said, yeah, man, I'd like to hear that. Preach it, Joshua. Man, you're on it now. Preach it. Let's go. But you know what they did? They said, kill them. That's what they did. They wanted to stone them with stones. They said, we'd rather listen to a message of, of, of negativity. We'd rather hear how bad things are. We'd rather someone tell us 
how rotten things are getting. We'd rather someone stand up and condemn everybody and everything than to get up and preach something positive to us. So they wanted to destroy the men that had faith. And the result was that God decided to destroy the doubters. And, and really, this is where we closed in the last lesson was I pointed out the fact that both groups got what they said. One group said, we can't go, we can't inherit it, and God said, you're right. You're right, you can't go, you can't inherit it. But two men said, we can go, we can't inherit it. And God said, you're right too. You can. And you will. You're going to get what you say. Well, how, is anybody feeling what I'm feeling this morning? I, I'm Somehow, somehow, somehow God help me to convey this. Amen. We've got to be so careful what we say. Our mouths get us into so much trouble. We talk so negative so much of the time. The Bible said let the weak say, I'm about to fall apart. No, that's not what he said. Let the weak say I'm strong. That's not, the, that, that's not a positive mental attitude. I'm not talking about the power of, of positive thinking and all. I, I'm just telling you that there is a degree of, of, of doubt and faith that are affected by our words and by the words of others. Faith is contagious. Positive people are contagious. You ever, you ever really been gloomy and down in the dumps and you got around somebody that was just upbeat and, and before you knew it, you weren't feeling quite so bad anymore? Well, have you ever been really feeling good and on top of things and you got around somebody that was gloomy? You know, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's a fine line we walk on how we either influence or are influenced. But both faith and doubt can be contagious. Hallelujah. And it was contagious for the children of Israel. They believed the doubt rather than those who had faith. And so God said both, both sides. Both sides get exactly what you said. And you know God does that in a church. God speaks through a man of God, a prophet will come by, a preacher will come by, somebody will come by and say, this church is going to have revival. You're, you're going to see great things. And there are some folks that say, yeah, we've heard that before. Not going to happen in my lifetime. God said, you're right. <laughs> somebody else said, oh, man, I believe it. God said, you're right too. Well, praise God. Amen, amen. So, God said, I, in fact, God told Moses, just step back. I'm just, I'm just going to wipe these people out. I, I mean, I am going to fry them to a crisp right here, right now. Over what? Over what sin did they commit? Now, you know, God didn't even do that when they were worshiping the golden calf. God... Moses was ready to do it then. In fact, you know, I, I can't help but wonder if Moses had said, why didn't I let God do it while he had the chance? 
Um, but when God saw their unbelief, God said, I, I'm ready just to destroy them. Moses said, now wait, God, don't do that. Don't. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, the enemies will look and they'll, they'll lay this on you and, and it's, it's not going to be a good thing. And, and, and he interceded for the people of Israel and God said, all right, I'm not going to wipe them all out at one time, but I'm going to tell you this, Moses. They're still going to die. They will die. They will not enter into the promise. Over what? It wasn't worshiping false gods. It wasn't adultery. It was unbelief. It was unbelief. Amen. And so, now, once God said that, then all of a sudden they changed their mind. I said, whoa, 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 hang on, God, let's go. Come on, everybody, let's go get the land. And Moses said, uh-uh. Because it's not only as important that you do the will of God, it's, it's just as important that you do it within God's time frame. I believe that churches, yea, this church, I believe that there are times for every church when they are not sensitive enough to the moving of the Holy Ghost to experience what God wants to give them right then. And, and the, devil, the devil plays into all this. He gets our minds distracted. He'll get us, you know, all kinds of things going on and... and uh, We'll get sidetracked, and we'll, we'll get division going, we'll get problems, we'll have, uh, all of a sudden, we'll be laid off, or we'll have financial difficulty, whatever it takes to get us distracted, so we're not really in tune with the Holy Ghost when God says, all right, go. And then later, we finally wake up and say, oh, 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 it's time to go, and God says, wait, no, no, you missed it. You missed it. I, I believe that. And, and again, I, I think that we can prove that with the man who was at the pool of uh, Bethesda. The Bible talks about the angel that came down and troubled the waters. And the key was to get in there at the right time. Anybody could get in the water, but you had to get in at the right time. And you've got to respond to the timing of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And so, and so the rest of the book, the rest of the book from that point forward is really devoted to the 40 years because here, here's what God did God said you spent 40 days over there and I'm going to make you wander in this wilderness one year for every day that you spent in the promised land you were there 40 days I'm going to make you wander 40 years but that wandering is for one reason and one reason only all the doubters are going to die all the doubters are going to die now you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to play on this too much, and I really want to get on into the rest of the lesson. We're already getting down towards the end of time here, and I haven't even started on what I want to talk about today. But but I can only imagine what it must have been in the minds of those children of Israel. You know, those that were twenty and under had the promise we're going to inherit the land, and God told them from the very start it was going to be forty years. So you know, I I just I wonder. It seems to me that in the early days of those wanderings that, that some of those began to cry and weep and wail with every death that took place. And sometimes there were, there were thousands that died at one time. And, uh, and, and I, I, just, I just believe they must have wept and wailed and sobbed and cried with every death that took place for a while. But after a while, something clicked in their mind. And they said, you know what, there's a reason for all this death and destruction. 
God's getting rid of the doubters. And somewhere down the line, the last doubter is going to be gone. And then we're going to have a bunch of believers around here. And when the last doubter is gone, and I got a feeling, Brother Brandon, that those funerals took on a different tone. I got a feeling that instead of weeping and wailing, they were kind of trying to hide their smiles. Another one bites the dust. <laughs> We're on our way to the promised land. It's not going to be much longer. We're going to get there. God's going to give it to us. God's going to do what he said. Well, hallelujah. So, uh, so the remainder of, of the book of Numbers is all about this, these 40 years that they were wandering in the wilderness waiting for the doubters to die that's why some have called this book the longest funeral march in history. Forty years just wandering until folks died. So let's, let's move on today. There were, throughout these 40 years, some persistent problems among these people that just continued to crop up, continued to crop up. It was, it was a character flaw in these people that they never got corrected throughout their wanderings. That really, you can boil it down to one thing. They had one problem. Murmuring. Complaining. They were the most complaining bunch of people you ever met. Nothing was ever right. I've, I've met a few of their descendants. They're alive and well. Ah, uh, nothing's ever right. It didn't matter what was going on. They complained. No matter what they encountered, God wasn't going to take care of them. God had just sent them there to die. God was not going to meet their needs. It didn't matter. We don't have any food out here. We remember the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Can anybody say halitosis? <laughs> I mean, of all things. Now, the melons I can understand, but leeks and onions and garlic? It's okay, but I wouldn't put that at the top of my list of things that I miss. We remember the wonderful food we had back in Egypt. And now we're out here to starve. So God said, well, tell you what, I'm going to give you miracle bread. Every day when you get up, there's going to be fresh bread from heaven on the ground. All you got to do is go and get However much you're going to eat. That's all there is to it. Now. <clears throat> you ever stop to think about the fact that God did not put this miracle bread on their table? I mean really. Did you ever think? God didn't just put it in their oven for them. They had to work to get to eat. Well, that's another lesson for another day. Um, miracle bread every, every day, every, except the Sabbath. And the day before the Sabbath, God doubled up. 
said, all you got to do is just get twice as much that day, and you just, one day a week, it's not going to spoil. Any other time, it's going to spoil overnight, but one day a week, it won't spoil. And, and all you got to do is go out and gather it. That's it. So what did they do about the miracle bread? Complain. Complain. We don't have any meat. Miracle, I mean, can you imagine? Can, really, can you imagine what it would be like every morning to get up, just walk out the front door, and there's a miracle right outside your door every day? And they're complaining. You say, I don't know how in the world they could do it. I do. Because we do the same thing. Do you know every time we walk in this place and the Spirit of God is moving and the Word of God is at work, there's a miracle taking place? Listen, folks, it's miraculous when you feel the power of God start to move in His house. It's miraculous! And yet there are people that sit around and complain. It's too hot. It's too cold. Preacher's too long-winded. Whatever. You know, just complaint, complaint, complaint. And you're sitting in the middle of a miracle. Has anybody felt God since you've been in this house today? Anybody? Has anybody felt God since you've been? Do you know you experienced a miracle this morning? What have we got to complain about? I know we're extreme. I know, I know, I know folks are having some problems. I know things are tight. I know, I understand all that. But we're in a place where miracles are happening. What have we got to complain about? But they complain. We need meat. God said, all right, I'm going to give you meat till it runs out your nose. No, that's not a joke. That's what he said. I'm not even paraphrasing. That's what God said. I am going to give you meat until it runs out your nostrils. That's what he said. You're going to be sick of it by the time you get through it. And God sent quails and piled them several feet high. And let them just lay there and rot. And some of them still weren't even, I mean, they just took it and roasted what they could and ate until they got sick. And God killed a bunch of them. Right there and there. But they just complain, 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 complain. Always complain. When they had no drinkable water, what'd they do? Complain. And God either healed the water or gave them water out of a rock. And the next time they got to a place they didn't have any water, what did they do? Say, oh man, God did this before. That's not what they did. You would think they would. You know, they watched God heal the bitter waters. They watched God open the rock and give them water. You'd think that by, especially by that third time, they say, oh, man, this is no big deal. God's going to take care of us. We got it made. God's going to see us through. But they didn't. They said, we're going to die. And it finally pushed Moses to the place. You know, and, and, and Moses, the Bible calls Moses the meekest man. There was no man as meek as Moses. This is what the Bible says about him. And yet on two occasions, I see Moses forevermore losing his temper. 
I mean, he got mad. Once when he was coming down from out, he'd been in the glory of God. See, well, help me, Jesus. I said, well, if he was a real man of God, he'd never lose his temper. He'd never. Well, are you going to say Moses wasn't? Well, if he prayed more. Well, Moses had just spent 40 days in the presence of God. And he's walking down the mountain, and he sees these people stripped down naked, dancing around a golden calf. Now, if that doesn't make you mad, and Moses got so mad, he took the tables of stone that God had carved out of the rock with his own hands. Moses was so mad, he just threw them to the ground. Then, the other time I saw Moses getting so mad is this third time they're back at the rock and God's already opened it once. God's already healed the bitter waters of Merah and, and, and they've watched this happen. They've seen it happen. And here they are complaining again that God's going to let them just dry up and blow away. And Moses gets mad again. Now, I'm not saying that we're always justified in getting mad. That's why Paul said, be angry and sin not. It's, it's how you deal with that anger that determines whether you're right or wrong. And Moses dealt with it improperly in this situation, and he smote the rock, and God said, I told you to speak to that rock. And God said, because of that, you're not going to enter the promised land. And so, so, so Moses had to deal with this. He, he dealt with it. They, they constantly, constantly complained. They complained, they complained, they complained. And uh, on many occasions, you know what they were complaining about? Their leader. That was one of their biggest complaints. It really was. They complained about Moses. Who does he think he is? What right does he have to tell me what to do? Why does he get up and do all this? Why, why does he? That was one of their biggest complaints. It, it went on, it went on, it went on. Uh, read for us Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Now Kor the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown, and they gathered themselves together against Moses, against and, Moses and against Aaron, against Aaron and said unto them, said, Ye take too much you upon you. You take too much on you. Seeing all the congregation are holy. We're holy. Every one of them. We hear from God. And the Lord is among We're them. We're spiritual. Wherefore, then lift ye up yourselves So why do you think you're so The congregation important. of the Lord. What makes you think you're so important? Well, we know how God dealt with this, don't we? God, God said, I'm going to do a new thing. And, and, you know, it's interesting that the cry that went out that day was not who is on Moses' side and who's on Korah's side, but it was who's on the Lord's side. Because God had appointed this leader. And that's what they failed to understand. It wasn't that Moses took all this on himself. In fact, Moses tried to talk God out of it. Moses didn't want this job. 
And I can promise you, before those 40 years was up, he sure wasn't wanting that job. He would have gladly resigned if God would have let him. But God said, who's on the Lord's side? And the Lord opened the ground and swallowed them. I mean, this was go directly to hell, do not pass go, do not collect $200. I mean, it, God said, I, uh -uh, zero tolerance on this deal. We're not putting up with this at all. This is just not going to fly. And so what did the people do? When God judged Korah, what did the people do? They come, you're getting it. You're seeing a pattern here, right? Instead of saying, oh, God, forgive us. We're sorry. Please don't let that judgment hit us. They said, look at what Moses did. Now, wait a minute. I mean, are you going to tell me Moses got a crowbar? How did Moses do that? But he was the one that got the blame. Moses destroyed all these good people. Moses ran them off. It's all Moses' fault. So they complained. Verse 41, read. But on the morrow all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. You killed the people of the Lord. They murmured. They murmured. I, I can't. Church, I'm telling you, this is, this is wild. But, but I have seen. I have seen this happen in modern times. I've seen the same attitude get a hold of people. And rather than accepting the judgment of God and fearing for their own souls, they complain. They complain. Uh, and so how did God deal with that? Well, let's read verse 49 and see. Now they that now, now hang on just a minute. How many died? How many died with Korah? Does anybody remember? We read that. 250. There was 250 that died with Korah. 250 that died. God opened the ground and swallowed. 250. Then the people start complaining, and let's see what happens. Verse 49. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700. Wow. 14,700. They didn't, they didn't have the same kind of rebellion that Korah did. They didn't rise up and shake their fist at the man of God and say, you no good for nothing. They just complained and felt sorry for the people that were judged. And God judged them. Now, here's the point. The point in all this, why were they complaining? What, what caused people to complain? In every situation, why were they complaining? unbelief they didn't believe God would take care of them they didn't believe that if their man of God got out of line that God would take care of him they, they just didn't believe God was going to take care of anything the whole thing boils down to one grave sin unbelief that's what it was that's what it was they didn't believe God. Psalm 78, verses 40 and 41. How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the and Holy One of Israel. limited the Holy One of Israel. Amen. They grieved him. They provoked him. They limited him. 
How, how did they do that? With their unbelief. With their unbelief. Look, it is still imperative that we believe God. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, read. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we that they so we see that they could not enter in. They could not enter in because of because unbelief. of unbelief. And so then chapter four carries on with this thought. Chapter four, verses one and two. Let us therefore Let fear us. I'm going to say us. Now, do you understand what the writer is saying here? Unbelief kept them from inheriting the promises of God. Kept them. Everyone say them. We're talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? Unbelief kept them from getting the promises of God. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, let us. We saw what happened to them. Let's take note of that. Let's not repeat the same mistake. Let us, therefore, fear. Lest a promise being left us a promise of entering, being left us into, of his entering rest. into his rest, any of you should any of seem you should to, come seem short of it. to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Uh-huh. But the word preached did not profit but them. the word preached did not profit them. Not being not mixed with being faith mixed and with them that heard faith. it. Not being mixed with faith. Faith. Are you hearing me this morning? I'm telling you, when you come to church, you shouldn't just come saying, well, it's time for the preacher to preach. But there is a recipe that needs to be followed while you're sitting on the pew. The preacher gives the word and you give faith. It doesn't matter how good the word is. It doesn't matter how good the preacher is. It did not profit them, the apostle said, because they never put their part of the recipe in there. In chemistry, they call this a catalyst. There are, there are ingredients that are inactive until the catalyst is put in, and it makes the inactive become active. And Paul said that's the way the word of God is. It's really inactive until you put the catalyst in there. You can hear preaching from now to the rapture and it won't do you one bit of good until you put some faith in what you're hearing. If you mix it with faith, God will make it come alive and things will start to happen. But you've got to add the faith to what you're hearing. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost right now. I'm telling you, saints of God, we got to reach a place where when the preacher preaches, we say, I believe that. I believe that. I'm a God, I want you to see right here, I'm putting my faith in that. I'm going to mix some faith in what he's saying right now. I believe you're going to do what you said. Uh, I'm telling you, I... I watched my old pastor go into many, many churches and preach faith. And I saw miracles sometimes, and I saw no miracles other times. Same man preaching, 
Sometimes the same message. That's right. Now, there were times that one time he stepped into the church in Colorado Springs and a man there with one leg several inches short of the other. He preached faith and God caused that leg to grow. Right there in front of everybody. Pulled the brace off. My pastor kept that brace for years hanging on his office wall. But you know, sitting in that very same service were many people that were sick that left with the same sickness. Now, what's the, and, and in fact, this man that had this miracle happen to him was a sinner. Never gave his life to God. Ended up in prison again after God healed him. Had no intention on living for God. And here were good saints that were faithful, doing what's right, living right, didn't get healed. Is God unfair? No. Wasn't God's fault. The word preached did not profit them. Put that verse back up here. Hebrews 4 and 2. Hebrews 4 and 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them not being mixed with faith. So one man, the word profited him. Because he took the right ingredient and mixed it into what was being said. But there were multitudes there that it didn't profit. It didn't do them any good. Can I tell you that in this service today, some of you will leave unchanged, unmoved, unstirred. And others will walk out saying, that was good. God touched me today. I got something from God today. Not because of me, not because of what I'm saying. But, but you'll walk out and say, God did something for me in that service today. What's the difference? Both people sitting in the same congregation, hearing the same preaching, singing the same songs. What's the difference? The difference is the ingredient that you have to put into this mix. If you mix faith in there, honey, you won't leave this service disappointed. I want to tell you something. Listen, it, it doesn't matter if this preacher gets up here and drops his watermelon. If I skip, that, that's an old preacher term. Preachers understand what I'm talking about, dropping the watermelon. It means we just did a bad job. We flopped. And uh, uh, that, that's the way that, that we describe it. And, and so, you know, if, if I get up here and my whole lesson is just a flop and it's, it's no good for nothing. And I'm I've seen some of those services where I, I wanted to go crawl in a hole somewhere and say, Dear God, how did I mess up that bad? I'm telling that's the truth. There's times I wish that I would have had a button on the pulpit that had a trap door. I could have just pushed the button and poof, I was gone and didn't have to face anybody. But I can but can I tell you that in some of those times when I felt like I did my absolute worst, somebody would come to me and say, You know what, preacher, that really touched me today. It did. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, it touched me. It, it was right what I, it was exactly what I needed. I heard what I needed. Why? Was it because of me? No. Was it because I did something? No. It was just the word and your faith. And you take the word and your, that's all, that's all that God requires. Take the word and your faith. And God can bypass this vessel. God, God 
can look at this imperfect vessel, this, this flawed vessel. God can just say, that doesn't even matter here. What matters is it's a delivery of the word and there's somebody out there that's got some faith. You say, I don't know about that, preacher. Well, if you don't know about that, go back and read the fifth chapter of Mark. You know what happened in the fifth chapter of Mark? What happened to everybody say, right? You're just agreeing with me. You know, look, here's what happened in the fifth chapter of Mark. What happened was the Bible says Jesus was walking along and he was thronged by a great crowd. But there was a little woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. And she had spent all of her living on a doctor and had gotten none better. But she said, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I know I shall be made whole. And she reached out and touched his garment. And immediately, the Bible says, virtue went out from him. And Jesus stopped in his tracks. And he said, who touched And the disciples said what? They said, Master, the multitude is thronging thee and touching thee. Anybody getting this? There are many people that are touching the Lord in this situation. You understand? Jesus is there. And I mean, people are bumping up against him. You ever been in a crowd like that? People are bumping up against him. People are touching him constantly. And not one thing's happening. They're doing the same thing she did. Hello? Others were doing the same thing she did. They were touching him and nothing happened. But this one little woman touched him. But her touch was different. Because she had an ingredient mixed into that touch. And I'm telling you that when the service is going on, God is sitting on his throne in heaven. And we're sitting here, oh, I love you, Jesus. Falling in love with Jesus. Falling in Oh, my hands are in the air. I'm touching the Lord. But at some point in the service, I can just see in my mind's eye, God in heaven is sitting on his throne. And he's watching all this yawning and looking at your watches and all of that other stuff that's going on and people waiting and can't wait for service to be over and thinking about what they're going to eat and where they're going to go. And God's sitting on his throne and he's watching all this. But all of a sudden, God stands up. And the angel said, what is it? What? He says, somebody touched me. Right there in that service. New Life Pentecostal Church. Sunday morning. Somebody just touched. What do you mean, Lord? They've all got their hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. But somebody added something to that. Somebody wasn't just going through the motions. Somebody wasn't just putting on a show. Somebody wasn't just doing their Pentecostal calisthenics. Somebody mixed it with some faith. Somebody reached out and touched me. Well... You got to mix it with faith. 
you got to stir some faith into this. Hallelujah. That's what God's looking for. That's what God's looking for. Hebrews 11 and 6. But without faith, it is impossible without, to please him. Without faith, it is, this word doesn't appear in the Bible very often. When it does, you better sit up and take notice. It's impossible for God to lie, and it's impossible for you to please God without faith. And you know, really, those two verses are really connected. Because if you really believe it's impossible for God to lie, then you're not going to have a problem with faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you don't have faith, you don't believe that it's impossible for God to lie. For he that cometh to God, what? Must believe. What, wait, 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 wait. What's that word? Must. You understand how important? You understand that is, a, that is an imperative it is essential. It is required. He that cometh to God must believe. Two things. What? That he is. That he is. Everyone say he is. He is. Amen. You must believe he is. And that he is and a rewarder. you must believe that he's a rewarder. Of them that diligently seek That's him. That's where we have our problem, isn't it? First part's okay. We're, we're all right with that. We got that first part down. We believe he is. And I, I, I taught a whole lesson just on that. Uh, it's been a couple of years ago now. But really what he's saying there is it's the same. We're saying it in the third person, he is. When he says it in the first person, it's I am. And so he that cometh to God must believe that God is the I am. Whatever you need, he is. He's your counselor. He's your doctor. He's your defender. He's your peace giver. Well, hallelujah. He is. And... We must believe that God will reward us if we diligently seek Him. We've got to believe that, church. We've got to believe that if we will diligently seek God, He will reward us. We must believe. We must believe. Well, I've only got a couple of minutes here. So let me see if I can go through these last things here very quickly. I, I'll touch on them so we can close this book out and, and um, we'll finish up. But... Chapters 22 through 25 describe for us what we have called the Balaam incident. And there are many, many important lessons in the story of Balaam. And we don't have time to go through those. And I'm not going to take time and get bogged down there dealing with it. But uh, a couple things that we see is that Balaam was not a Jew. But he was a prophet. He was a prophet. And uh, God did use him. But, but this, this is an important lesson. I, I, I don't really want to get sidetracked on all this because I want to get us back to faith before we get through with this. But listen, we, we've got to learn this lesson. Not everything that God uses 
has the favor of God on it. That's a hard lesson for us to learn sometimes. Because we see somebody that God uses, we think, man, the way God uses them, they must really be powerful. They must really be spiritual. I mean, God must really love them. That's not necessarily the case. In fact, one of the most powerful churches, as far as gifts of the Spirit, that, that is addressed in the Scripture is the church at Corinth. But it was also one of the most carnal. Hello? I mean, you, you talk about problems. Now, that church had problems. You know, that's why it's amazing. People say, well, there's too many hypocrites in church. I'm not going to go to that church. If you ever find a church that does not have any hypocrites, I'd sure like to know where it is. I don't believe it exists. Furthermore, I want you to understand something. The best place for a hypocrite is in the church. Because if there's any hope of them being helped, it's going to be found right here. You know, having that kind of attitude is like saying, I'm not going to that hospital. There's too many sick people in it. Everybody that's there is sick. Oh, really? Hallelujah. Not everything, not everything that is used of God is favored of God. Samson was used of God, but he didn't have God's favor on him. Balaam was used of God, but he didn't have God's favor. Fact! God used Balaam's donkey. Didn't he? Was the donkey favored of God? Was the donkey spiritual? I know some that think they are. All right, I, I, that was a cheap shot. I, that, that was a cheap shot. I, I... <laughs> Help us, Jesus. Uh, just because God chooses to use someone or something does not mean God favors it or that God approves of what they're doing. Hallelujah. God uses what's available to him. Uses what's available. Now I do believe that God prefers to use those tools that fit best in his hand. But God will use any tool that's made available. There, there, was, a, there was a man, I don't have time to get into all this, but there was a man several years ago, if I called his name, some of you would know him that was a quote-unquote faith healer. And he was really, really, I mean, he was having huge crusades, huge crusades, and seeing phenomenal, it wasn't faith, phenomenal miracles, people getting up out of wheelchairs and things happening. This was many years ago. But the man died an alcoholic. And when he died... Those that traveled with him finally came out and said, there were nights before he stepped out onto the stage, we had to hold him up. He was so drunk, he couldn't even stand up. 
And we would hold him up and we'd hear him pray, God, not for my sake, but for the sake of these poor people, would you use me one more time? And he would sober up and step out on stage and see miracles happen. Now, do you think God approved of that lifestyle? Absolutely not. Did God use the vessel? Evidently, he did. Balaam was used of God. And uh, yet God didn't approve of what Balaam did. And again, I don't have time to get, I wish I did, I had check more time. One of the interesting points, I'll just touch on this and then we're going to move on. Um, one of the interesting points is the fact that Balaam was hired by the enemies of the people of Israel to go out and prophesy against Israel, and, and yet he never could. And um, he kept asking God, please let me prophesy against them. And God said, no, no, no. And he kept saying, please, God, please. And God said, no. Finally, the interesting thing is that Balaam went to God and said, God, would you let me prophesy against him? And God said, sure, go ahead. Go ahead. Did God change his mind? Well, he's given different directions now. Go. Do what you want to do. And God put an angel in the way with a sword. Now, God was not okaying prophecy against the people of God. God was sending Balaam to his destruction. God didn't change his mind. God didn't change his plan. But here's how I answer that. Ezekiel 14, verse 4. Read that scripture for me. Ezekiel 14, 4. Therefore speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the, Every house, of man Israel, of the house of Israel that set that up his up idols, idols in, his in his heart and put it the stumbling block, puts a stumbling block of his iniquity, of his before, iniquity his face, before his face and cometh to the prophet, comes to the prophet I, the Lord, I, the Lord, will answer will him, answer that, him cometh that comes according to the multitude of his idols. God said you can get to a place that you've got these idols in your heart and you're praying and God said, I'll answer you like the idol would answer you. And you'll get the judgment that's coming. See, this is, this is and again, I, I, I don't have time to do it justice, but this is what scares me about people who believe in the quote-unquote permissive will of God. This is one example, Balaam is one example where I find God permitting someone to do something that wasn't his will. I don't want to do that. I'm not, you know, they say, well, God's got a perfect will and then a permissive will. His permissive will, he'll let me do it. It's not really what he wants, but he'll let me do it. I, I just can't buy into all that. The, the only place I find it is in Balaam. And this scripture, I think, alludes to it. I don't want God permitting me to do something he doesn't want me to do. I want God to stop me from doing what he doesn't want me to do. In fact, if God's got to put an angel in the way and cause my donkey to speak, that's all right with me. Just don't let me go against the plan of God. But the sad thing was that Balaam was so intent on doing it, he, he, didn't, he, he didn't prophesy against the people of God, but he found another way to destroy God's people. And it wasn't by prophesying against them, it was by getting them to begin doing things that brought the judgment of God on them. 
he introduced wickedness to them and allowed them to destroy themselves, thereby accomplishing something that no outside nation could accomplish. Now listen, we need to learn that lesson too, church. Because I want you to understand that Jesus Christ has built his church upon a rock and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Hell can't destroy the church. But the church can destroy the church. And so all hell's got to do is get us destroying ourselves. That was the error of Balaam. And you read about it in the book of Jude, the error of Balaam. That's, that's what happened. He got them to performing things that brought the judgment of God on them, and they ended up destroying themselves. What he was not allowed to do through his prophecies, he taught them to do to themselves. And we need to, we need to take note of that. And then finally, chapters 22, 26 through 36, the preparation for the promised land. And I'm closing. If you ladies want to come and find something something here that makes sense or even if it doesn't that's alright too um, preparations for the promised land chapters 26 to 36 once again it was census time because that old generation that refused to enter the land was all gone except Joshua and Caleb out of more than a million people only two only two believed God and when the majority was gone, the believers still stood. You know, church, I know, I know in America, you know, this, this whole idea of democracy is pushed and promoted. And, 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 um, but God doesn't operate by a democracy. God doesn't take votes to find out how the majority thinks. The majority is not always right. But God is always right. Didn't we just talk about this Thursday night? Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. Every man. So it, the majority is not always right, but God's always right. Now, from, from the first census to the second census, some nearly 40 years later, the number of the men of war declined by almost 2,000. Now, out of more than a million, that's, you know, it, it's still 2,000 is a significant number. But, but it was not as many going into the promises as it was that came out of bondage. They did see their numbers fall. Can I tell you this morning, that numbers are not always a sign of the favor of God. I, I'm, not, I'm not here to be judgmental. I'm not, here to, I'm not saying anything about anybody in particular. I'm just stating a general rule. But there are churches that are getting bigger that are not favored by God. And can I tell you, there are some churches that are getting smaller that are favored by God. Now, 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 please, I, I'm, not, I'm not promoting the idea of us four and no more. I'm not saying that the only way you can have God's favor is to get smaller. I'm not saying that. 
I'm just saying you can't look at the numbers to determine whether God favors something. If numbers determine the favor of God, then God favors the Muslims. Because there's more of them than there are people who call themselves Christian. Numbers don't determine who's right. Truth determines who's right. And what is truth? John 17 and 20. Thy word is truth. This is truth right here. I don't care, I don't care if 99 and 44 one hundredths percent of the Christian churches teach something. It doesn't matter. What matters is what does the Bible say? Don't give me this argument of this is what the majority believe. I, I'm not interested in what the majority believe. Fact. In fact, if, you, if you'll do a study of, of Christian denominations over the last hundred years, most of them have changed what they believe. They really have. They're not preaching the same thing they preached a hundred years ago. They're really not. Just a little bit of research will reveal that. But God's word hasn't changed. And God hasn't changed. So we don't go by the majority. We go by what the word of God says. So here we find... After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, unbelief, unbelief resulted in wasted time, wasted effort, spiritual stalemate, but faith stood the test of time. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, saints of God, it's all about trusting God. It's all about believing in Him and standing firm on the promises of God. Let's stand this morning. Let's stand this morning. Let's, let's lift our hands and love the Lord for just a moment. Praise God. Hallelujah. And so Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. And if I could just offer you my abridged version of Hebrews chapter 11. This is abridged. It is just a few select phrases from these 32 verses here of Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 32. Here is the Hall of Faith in a nutshell. Now faith, through faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, through faith, in faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, through faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And what shall I more say? That's it. It's faith. Everything that was accomplished throughout the word of God was accomplished because somebody believed 
what God said. And they stood firm on the promises of God. I'm here to tell you today, if you can reach out to God in faith right where you're at, right where you're standing, God can take care of any situation in your life. God can heal any sickness that you have. God can meet any financial need you've got. I'm telling you, God can do it if you'll believe. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. He's able to do it, church. He's able to do it. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? He is able. Oh, come on. Let's praise him one more time. Let's praise him one more time, everybody. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Amen, amen. I've gone a few minutes over this morning. And uh, that's the way it works sometimes. Don't have a set time to get out. I hope we don't. Um, I do want to remind you of service tonight, 6 o'clock. Let's be here at least by 5.30 for prayer. And uh, believe in God for a great time tonight. Also, some of the ladies have fixed some pies and cakes uh, downstairs, uh, apple pie, pecan pie, cherry pie, cheesecake, millionaire pie, sugar cookies, banana bread, and coconut cream. Makes me hungry. Hallelujah. So if you're interested in one of these, you can see our ladies downstairs after service this morning. Praise God. God bless you. Greet one another in the fear of God. You are dismissed in Jesus' name.